Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Everything could always be otherwise. This is the third episode of the Honest Citizen Kindness and Courage Club podcast, where we're working together to imagine and articulate new ways of peaceful and non-fear-based living in a post-coronavirus world. In this episode, we'll be reflecting with a humanitarian research consultant on how we can understand coronavirus and pretty much all major crises that occur today in relation to the wider climate crisis and understand the collective citizenship that lies behind it all. This is an honest podcast that tells the origin story of coronavirus, but it's not a doom podcast. Stay with us to the end as we begin to imagine together what our destination story might be from here how we can move together in kindness and courage away from some of the scarcity anxiety-led citizen behaviors that lead to crises like this that then lead to eco-anxieties. How we can move together towards sustainability and abundance. When the pandemic hit the UK, one of my most citizen thoughts was, oh no, we've just invested so much time into our other performance art project about the climate emergency and about slow fashion. And our strap line, which is the occasion is climate emergency, is printed on all our stuff. And now it's so 2019. It's not a climate emergency now, it's a virus emergency. And so all our messaging is out of date. It wasn't until I listened to what my friend Jen had to say that I realized that besides this thought of mine being pretty arsy, it was also completely wrong. The occasion is still climate emergency. Coronavirus is not a competitor issue to the climate emergency. It's the latest event in the increasing climate emergency. What, what actually is your job title? <laughs> I'm not even sure. Um, I think I'm a, a, res- a research consultant. Just a bit generic, really. This is Jen Thomas. She works with the research people. There's a lot to her work, but there's two things I think you should know about it. Firstly, that one of the things that her and her team do is to try and help humanitarian organizations be freed of default or unintentional citizen behaviors. Humanitarian work is motivated by kindness and courage, but like all things, it can be a bit citizen. 
in that sometimes it can have power abuses or unethical practices that creep into it. In her work, Jen helps to keep their work ethical and their power in check. So for example, they work hard to ensure that people and communities that are most affected by a crisis are also the people most listened to in the design and implementation of responses to those crises. And they also work to help organizations to not just view those affected as victims, but as communities that often hold huge amounts of contextual knowledge that should be properly heard and meaningfully inform the interventionist work of these organizations. So Jen is part of making sure that good work is done in a non-citizen way. The other thing that they do, which I love, is that they support new innovative work in the humanitarian sector. And I love this aspect because it's a hopeful response to the reality, as she articulated it, that the humanitarian sector has become unfit for purpose. And she talks about several reasons for that, but basically it comes down to the climate crisis, which has meant that there are now larger scale and more frequent crises than the sector can respond to. But instead of being crippled by that, they work to help organizations imagine and innovate better ways of working to reshape themselves so that they can help redress power imbalances across the globe and improve the lives of billions of people around the world. Pretty decent. Although Jen gets real and says it like it is in this podcast, the realism of her words is about facing up to the reality of the climate emergency, but it's not a realism that impoverishes her imagination and descends into misery. What drives our conversation is the idea that everything could always be otherwise. And that the way that things can be otherwise is through works of the imagination. To quote the performance art collective, Catastrophe, we have the feeling that today, imagination is only viewed as a way to escape reality, instead of as a tool to change it. They tell the story of how in 1890, Clément Indier was fascinated by bats. He wanted to fly like them. He brought gigantic bats with one meter long wings from India and studied their morphology. At the end, he designed a product that looked ridiculous and made him an object of ridicule. In its first trial, his construction flew for 50 meters, but with only a height of 20 centimeters above the ground. This attempt was like an imaginary fantasy. It was absurd. It was nothing. But it was the beginning of aviation. Being realistic is an expression that we encounter all the time. If elements of what Jen and I imagine or hope for together in this seem unrealistic to you, these performance artists remind us that a lot of the time realism is nothing but an abuse of power. For me, when thinking about coronavirus, I think one of the most important things to reflect on is is how we got here. Um, we're in a position now where there are several millions cases of COVID-19 across the world, thousands of thousands of, of deaths and a huge proportion of the globe, people are being confined to their homes. This is a situation that we've never seen before in human history in, in quite this way. And we know that COVID-19 
passed from an animal to a human at a wet market in Wuhan, China. That's what the evidence suggests. You know, at, at one point in this market where live animals and wild animals and, and domestic animals are all, are all bought and sold in this, this kind of an, of an arena. So to start at that place, the concerning reality is that we are here in this sort of coronavirus crisis precisely because of human interference in nature. This virus is the result of humans continuing to push into the last wild spaces of our environment, where as long as we seek to control and exploit nature beyond our boundaries, we will inevitably come into contact with viruses we haven't met before and therefore viruses that we have no immunity to. And as concerningly, these kinds of epidemics and pandemics are likely to be our future as long as we continue to pursue this kind of trajectory where we are buying and, and demanding and consuming more and more wild animals for various different needs and purposes. And because intensive farming has required such a huge amount of space as demand for meat has been encouraged and yeah they're taking over much more land and pushing the smaller scale farmers out further into the wilderness as well where they are more likely to come into contact with viruses that are residing in wilder spaces when we're facing such an immediate health crisis to the global population and um, people might ask why we would want to talk about the environmental crisis but the issue is that they are intimately linked and we we can't really think about addressing one without the other or at least thinking about how do we stop something like this happening in the future we have to think about the way that we engage with the environment as we currently do because that is at the root of how we ended up here but uh, I guess we should be cautious in celebrating some of those short-term gains because there are some very serious risks too. So Naomi Klein, who is a Canadian writer, I think, she wrote a book called The Shock Doctrine after 9-11 to describe the way that national crises can often be used as an opportunity for politicians to push through highly unpopular policies on the quiet whilst other people are sort of distracted and trying to work out what does life look like now in the midst of this crisis and how do we move on from it. And I think the environment is something that could well be a casualty of some of these kind of policies that are being pushed through. So under the cover of the crisis, the White House, for example, has rolled back fuel economy standards for the car industry. The Environmental Protection Agency has stopped enforcing environmental laws. There are three states that have now passed laws that means you can criminalise fossil fuel protesters. Construction is resumed on a very controversial oil pipeline. And uh, I think the US government is set to provide a massive economic stimulus that includes a $50 billion bailout for aviation companies. So there's a, there's a real risk that once lockdown ends, that it's not just that we go back to business as usual, but things could be significantly worse potentially if governments use this as an, as an opportunity to reduce some of the protections that we currently have on our environment. So yeah, I think there, there are a few things that, that we need to think about in this context in terms of protecting the environment during coronavirus. There are several campaigns that different organisations are running. Greenpeace is one of them. They are 
pushing for some environmental conditions to any bailouts that the government might provide. And there are several campaigns around developing a Green New Deal. I think Europe has a Green New Deal and there's a lobby for a UK Green New Deal. And what that means is that people want to develop an ambitious national or continental plan to tackle the climate breakdown whilst also creating a fairer society that works for everyone. It's usually like a programme of different policies, investment and regulation that recognises that the causes of the climate crisis and equality are, are often one in the same. So some of the features of these policies might be to create a carbon tax where only those businesses that can prove that they're making the necessary reductions in their carbon footprint are eligible for a public bailout. It also means committing to directing money towards those industries investing in green jobs, so thinking about sustainable transport, renewable energy, building renovations, research and innovation, and also, very importantly, thinking about funding the recovery of biodiversity and developing a circular economy as well. So those are a few different things that people are trying to put forward as a way out of this as we seek to build a, a different future after coronavirus. So I think it's important for people to be aware of some of the political alternatives that are on the table and trying to actively support those in various different ways. I like the idea that you've told us kind of the kind of origin story of how we got here. So this podcast episode will be set within the context of this wider Honest Citizen project that we're doing, which is reflecting on the way that we respond within the crisis at a kind of personal, individual level. But I think listening to you, you hear it's kind of zooming out and zooming back to see how citizenship actually led to this, you know, global citizenship is the origin story of this and other pandemics. Ooh, yeah. Interesting. Just as a kind of balancing thing to what you've been talking about, I wonder if, have you talked about the kind of citizen origin story? What would a kind of genuine citizenship destination story look like that could bring us out of this towards something that actually is a sustainable future? Like if you were describing that to your children and you're like, this is how the place that we came to, this is the kind of the new normal that we created out of coronavirus. What would that life look like? And I mean from like, and you could just pick up on anything, but like from like mm -hmm. the really intimate stuff, like what does someone's home environment look like? What, what are the things that the house is filled with? You know, whether it's from the type of toilet paper you have, right through to like how do communities work and how does how do the governments operate? How would you describe that as an aspirational kind of vision for a destination story that gets us out of this kind of citizen origin to something that's redemptive? I guess. Yeah, that's a really good question because I think that's one of the biggest things that probably I struggle with and other people that are really genuinely filled with an eco-anxiety about the environmental crisis is just this sense of being locked into this, this global consumer machine that is designed to disconnect you from the consequences of anything that you do. And I think we, we exist in a, in a relentless machine that 
you know, it's very difficult to say, stop, I want to get off the ride. Um, you know, so it's really important to have specific steps that you can take that just make you able to own your own decisions. But I think they also need to sit within the context of being able to tackle something of that machine. So I guess there's a few elements to how you do that. And I think there is a sense in which you have to have time to reflect on some of the issues that we're facing. I think the driver of change needs to be compassion and empathy. Yeah, maybe empathy is a better word. I think it's really difficult when you're struggling against, you know, the demands of life to feel empathy and compassion for for anything that is outside of your immediate world. And unfortunately, that's what consumerism does really well as it distances you from the impact of your fast fashion and your and the meat industry and, and everything. I feel like we need to have the space to probably to slow down and to be able to think about these things. And I guess attached to that is it's really difficult to do that on your own, having, creating community spaces where we can address some of those issues together, where we can explore what it means to do things differently and how we can do that as communities, I think is critical. Because I also think it's really difficult to maintain certain behaviors unless on the positive side, yeah, unless there is this kind of positive reinforcement from those around you or on a slightly more negative angle, like peer pressure, essentially. I mean, think about the coronavirus, how the shift in human behavior has been incredible, that going out and about and, and having contact with someone else has all of a sudden become this absolute no-no. There is this huge shift in what is socially acceptable behavior. And that has led to a total global transformation in societal behavior. And I think we need exactly the same thing with the environment and how we live. We need to have opportunities to explore that as communities. I think what I'm hearing in you as well is like you're so knowledgeable on these like really practical steps that we can take within the system, but at the same time recognizing that what actually needs to fundamentally change is the system as well. So at FUR, basically one of the things we're about is kind of being a provocative adjutant for like cultural renewal. And yet, when I was reading the news in the early days where they were talking, the sort of consultants to the government were talking about like, what long-term are we actually going to do about this virus? You know, they were listing things like, well, the, mm. the obvious thing is to try and find a vaccine and, you know, um, potentially lockdown and all this kind of stuff. And one of the things was to change the way we actually socialize or, or the way that they, I can't remember how they mm -hmm. like long-term change in the way society is designed or something like that. And I remember thinking as I read it, my reaction was actually like almost like a child in the way of like, wait, what can we, can we actually change things? Yeah. Like, can big systems actually be changed? Because when you've grown up in a mm -hmm. system, like I've never lived through any kind of revolution. So which, which is obviously made for a stable upbringing, but also means that you kind of, to quote Bono, like you, you, you don't get a sense of the fact that there is a malleableness to the world, mm. that it can actually be changed. And I think that has to be the kind of energy and vision that drives 
all of this is that we're not just like, okay, I'm going to change the toilet paper I purchased, but my changing the toilet paper I purchased from something that's not recycled to recycled or whatever, or something that's not shipped from China to something that's got a small carbon footprint is itself valuable, but it's also about a gesture that speaks to this bigger truth that everything can be changed. And I don't know, I'd have to look up the quote of who it is, maybe you know, but there's someone who says, everything could always be otherwise. And I think that has got to be as good a mantra for us to take hold of now as we think mm. about trying to exit out of lockdown and try to re-enter some form of no normality that's actually not normal, that's actually a new, innovative, creative way of living. Capitalism has been such a driver to, to this citizen way of living that has led to this, but capitalism mm -hmm. is, is also heralding itself as the solution to like what we need to do when we come out of this is like double down yeah. in our capitalist ways to recover the economy, to recover this precious way of life that we're yeah. all grieving, having been disconnected to. Mm -hmm. And actually what we need to do is there's certain things certainly to be grieved, but there's certainly a lot to be relieved yeah. of and go, actually, I don't want to just have a kind of men in black experience where my, the memory of this experience is wiped and I'm just sort of quickly co-opted and distracted by the market into my old ways of, of doing things when those old ways of doing things led to this problem in the first place. Consumerism has expanded in terms of what can be consumed and the world and tourism and other consuming other places has become such a big thing now and lockdown has taken that away. You have to focus on where you are. I feel like a different way like a way out of lockdown, a way to reimagine it is thinking about focusing on the immediate environments around us and how do we breathe life into those, both in terms of biodiversity, but creating local wildernesses and actually having the places closest to us not being things we just want to escape, but actually the world around us anywhere can have spots of beauty even within a mega city maybe if we had that there would be less of this drive to have to go and seek out the most beautiful part of the world because where we live is actually a nice place to be i'm not trying to ban travel in its entirety but i think that's one of the root causes because it's so easy to escape where you live it's also very easy to not care about it and I think lockdown brings you really face to face with that. And there's something I think around improving local economies and in terms of resilience against environmental crises. As being able to grow our food more locally and there being more of a collective knowledge of how to do that, but also more investment in, in doing that across the country rather than outsourcing it to other countries. As you know, like we both live in Halston and there's this like park, there's Roundwood Park, but the next to Roundwood Park is kind of open space. It's just got a path that runs through it. And in one corner, it's got the skate bowl. The rest of it's just green grass. I just had this image when you were talking of our local Tesco closing down. And instead of people going to Tesco, you go to that field and the whole <laughs> field has been turned into like a community's, the whole community's allotment. That's what shopping is redefined as it's going and like literally harvesting the carrots out of the earth yourself, which is 
part of me is this, oh, that's completely unrealistic. But then there's part of me that's trying to challenge myself in that of no, everything could always be otherwise. And the things that I've been conditioned to believe are like, you know, singularly inevitable scenarios can be deconstructed, can be. Yeah. Tesco isn't the only way that we can access food if we were to be collectively intentional yeah. about it. Yeah, definitely. There's a huge amount of research about just how we are, you know, our bodies are designed to be connected to the earth. There's something about breathing in microbes from the soil that apparently has this huge impact, I think, on on your stress levels and, and hormones and all sorts of things. There's even something around hugging trees, which I did actually catch someone doing in Roundwood Park the other day, and I almost joined them because, <laughs> like, wow, I, I think... If someone in Roundwood Park is doing that, there must be something in it. Um, but, you know, there is something, yeah, there's there's obviously something about physically getting your hands dirty that, you know, we, we were built for. Let's be honest, biology is far behind technology. We just don't change as quickly as our, as our world does. And we need things that we don't know we need because we've maybe never come across them. I guess a major thing, that probably is worth talking about is divesting from the fossil fuel industry. What has been really interesting about the coronavirus is just how much the, the fossil fuel industry has been hit. You know, it's been hanging on by a thread in terms of mm. its ability to, to continue being a viable industry in many cases, which is a crazy thought to think that something that has been so hugely dominant that it's reached a point where it needs rescuing is quite an exciting thought that it could be so easily undone. Incredible to imagine, but if everyone just decided that they weren't going to bank with HSBC anymore and put all their money in an ethical bank, we could bury those kind of industries. But it does have incredible potential. And I think there is something around seeing what has just happened that makes you think, well, actually, that could be possible. It could be possible for our money to be going into renewable power instead of the fossil fuel industry. That is a very viable thing now. My dad sent me a link to this. The UK had not relied on any coal power for something like 18 days and counting, but it's within our grasp. But it might take collective action to, to push it over the tipping point. But yeah, no one really likes to think about banking. It's a bit of a dry subject. I find it easy to feel depressed when I think about my bank account, but I do feel like it's an area where it's hard to feel like you've got much agency. It's just every day that money is doing something and so much comes from that one decision of which bank you invest with, but it feels so, it's just, it's just like the whole consumers in general. It's just another area where you sort of feel detached from your own agency within it, whether it's I purchase some clothing from the high street and I am completely detached from the entire supply chain story of this piece of garment. Um, at the same time, then what I invest my money into has an ongoing journey that I'm detached from as well. That does feel like the root of it, doesn't it? That if we were just brought much closer to the direct consequences of our actions, we would behave so differently. But the world is designed so that we don't have to face them. And so other other battles become a priority or a distraction. Distraction is the strategy of, it's certainly the strategy of, you know, tech companies and 
yeah. Silicon Valley. That's what their goal is. Keep everybody's attention diverted to this and that and the other so that there's just no headspace to for any real awareness, mm. I guess. That does make me think about about the media as well. When you think about, you know, how incredible it is that the the news cycle has managed to maintain this this interest for us in talking about the same thing over and over again. The power that it has over what we focus on and what we think about and how we behave. You know, the opportunities for its role in the climate crisis is massive. If we had much more awareness, if it was much more part of the of the public consciousness, and I don't just mean all the, the doom pieces about how messed up the world is. I guess they have a role in bringing some of the consequences of our behaviour closer to us. That is one of the ways that in a globalised economy, that's what the media can do. If it had the kind of level of, of focus that coronavirus has had, that could have a, a huge impact on how people see the climate crisis in terms of its importance to us. I'm not really a media expert, so I don't necessarily know what the angle is to, <laughs> is to take. But. No, me neither, but I do love to... Um... I do love to pretend I am. Um, you know, you think about like the mechanics and the, the sort of formulas of great storytelling and there's this like moment early on of the kind of the calling. Like the call. So at this point, I began rambling about the role of the media. And then we turned to chatting about really specific climate actions that we need to take and how best to share them with our fellow honor citizens. It would take way too long to go into the specifics of them and Jen and I spoke for ages. So I want to finish this podcast off by setting the scene rather than going into the specifics. But all of Jen's actions will be posted to our website, so check them out. I see Jen's climate actions as plot lines within a destination story. One where we have been led away from all the shittison stuff. What I want to do before you read her actions is to set the scene for her story so that we can set out from the right place, a healthy place that's not anxiety-filled, so that we can venture out in kindness and courage. As we learn from Jen's work, even good humanitarian things can be done in a little bit of a shittison way, and we're about doing things in a kind and courageous way. So to that end, here are my thoughts. Let's go beyond climate crisis to the idea of climate calling. Enough climate crises have happened and a forecast to happen for us to have all we need to hear the calling in this moment. We are like the archetypal protagonist, being called out to do something life-changing and life-saving, even though we know ourselves to be the most unlikely heroes. So for example, in one of her climate actions, Jen talks about participating in climate protests, and how for most of us, everything about protests makes for the most unappealing activity. But we need to get beyond that now, we, as those who don't love it, need to be the ones that do it. But the thing with this calling to collectively step out as kind and courageous protagonists is that the character we collectively play now is not just a passive one. We are the antagonist. We are collective villains. Let me explain. Recently, several people have made the comparison between the story of the Israelites' exodus out of Egypt with the climate emergency now. But it's not so much Egypt versus Israel 
or any one nation versus another. It's us versus our children. So long as we continue to eat factory-farmed meat ten times a week, we continue to act as Pharaoh, and our children are the enslaved Israelites. There's a really popular Christian song going around social media right now. If you're not a Christian, or friends with ten Christians on Facebook, you've probably not heard it. But the lyrics are based on the blessing that the Israelites would speak over their families. And then there's this repeated line that goes like this. May his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your families and their children and their children and their children. It's a beautiful prayer. But here's the thing. We are the key to the answer to the prayer for our own children and their children. Our lifestyle choices now determine the extent to which our children and their children can be blessed or cursed. But it's not just that circumstances are calling for it, and our children and their children's survival depends on it. Recent surveys have found that only 9% of people in the minority world in the West even want to return to how things were before the pandemic lockdown. There's an itch, and I think part of it is that that self-serving thrill ride of our capitalist life is starting to make us nauseous. The good news is that the kind of self-limiting lifestyles that our future existence now depends on are not things to grit our teeth and step miserably into as though the only alternative to nauseating consumerism is boredom. The new styles of living that we're being called to bring with them a legitimate thrill. They require courage, not just passive co-option. They are a more genuine but slow-releasing thrill ride. Because of this, we don't need to feel either self-pity or be self-righteous towards others when we embrace them. But I think beyond being thrilling, these new lifestyles give us consumerists the chance to not just be characterized by our acquisition of pretty shiny new things all the time, but for us, our beings and our way of life itself, to be a thing of deep beauty, of conceptual strength, where our lives themselves, not just the shit we own, can be regarded as art. One of the key ways that we can do this in a non-citizen, kind and courageous way is to play an open hand. What I mean by that is that when we are actively trying to create new cultures, we're all rookie learners. So we need to play an open hand. This has happened with COVID lockdowns. I've noticed it in my own community. We share a garden and before coronavirus, we just knew how things were done and we did them without articulating the what and the why to each other. We could play a closed-handed game because we all knew the rules. But when lockdown happened, we needed to quickly give each other permission to challenge each other where our actions didn't fit with the new culture we needed to form. Without that permission, we had no hope of reforming our way of life. Because in the old culture, telling someone, for example, that they were standing too close to you was rudeness. Now it had to be permitted as kindness. And in the same way, we need to give each other permission to critique the energy suppliers we use, the banks we invest in, the food we eat. Not in a judgy way, but as a group of newbies who are trying to forge new ways of living together. So 
Sonia Renee Taylor's words have been trending on social media at the moment. She wrote, We will not go back to normal. Our pre-corona existence was not normal, other than that we normalised greed, inequity, exhaustion, depletion, extraction, disconnection, confusion, rage, hoarding, hate and lack. We should not long to return, my friends. We are being given the opportunity to stitch a new garment, one that fits all of humanity and nature. But unless we're willing to play an open hand in the way we live, where we humbly accept input from others and gently give it to them, words like these might inspire us, but they will ultimately fuel new conflicts. So we need to play an open hand if we are to stitch together a new garment of any worth and beauty and sustainability, because our lifestyles are not just purely our own business anymore. One idea that Jen and I had that fits into this idea of the open hand is a reality TV show called Eco Eye, obviously a spin-off from Queer Eye. In this imaginary show, rather than one individual having a whole life makeover, a whole community, or maybe just a neighborhood block, will come together to have a climate-positive lifestyle makeover that's generated by themselves with their own ideas and just some guiding help from the Fab Five. In our imaginary show, the Fab Five are, firstly, Gemma. She's like a composite of Anthony, Bobby and Karamo. She looks at purchasing choices and food and home life hacks. But she also asks provocative questions like, what is the one thing your overseas beachside holiday can never give you an escape from? The one thing we all desperately need a break from? Consumerism. Wherever you fly to, you're still being served by staff all your interactions are transactions, it's still pure consumerism. Then she says, have a real escape. Do a staycation with family and friends instead. Then there's Felicity. She's mostly like a tan France with a little bit of JVN thrown in. She does the whole eco-ethical slow fashion wardrobe and styling consultation. But she also performs skits, like this one, where she says like, do you struggle to know how to dress for the occasion? Do you worry that you won't dress right for the event? Don't worry, it's easy now. Humans have streamlined the occasion. Now it's always the same. The occasion is always climate emergency. And so the dress code is always slow fashion. Easy. Then there's Jen T. She's about business and how you can make that ethical. She's about finance and the choices you make with banking. And she's about political engagement. There's not really a real Queer Eye equivalent for her, but she is a total nerd and she does her best to not be partisan. Then the last two are David and Jen. They work together as a kind of partial Karamo figure. They do the culture and pastoral stuff, helping the communities and the neighbourhoods to design their own rituals that help to express their eco-anxiety collectively, but also to express and ritualise their eco-hopes. This imaginary Netflix series is an example of the role of the arts and imagination in helping us to grab hold of a vision of the other that everything could always be. Everything could always be otherwise. Where TV becomes reality TV becomes just reality.
Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for more episodes as we reflect together over the next few months of the performance. If you want to become an honest citizen, we'd love to have you. Join the club by visiting furproduction.com and follow us on Instagram at furproduction. Thank you. Christianity through art, Christianity as art.